0: We're so grateful to have you with us here in 2024. Happy New Year to everybody. We hope that you had meaningful holiday season. We just had such a great conversation with Annie, and we're looking forward to sharing that with you. But one of the things that we wanted to do before we even get into our dialogue with her is just to talk a little bit more about us as an organization here at Someone to Tell To. Obviously, we help the world to listen. That's kind of our tagline. And one of the things that we're calling this year, the year of sales for someone to tell it to. And we realize that we're a nonprofit and we're not a business, but we oftentimes have to make decisions that probably fall more in line with being a business in terms of just selling what we do. And so one of the things as, as our, our community here, we invite you to do with us is just to figure out ways that together we can catalyze and 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 push this movement forward together We just wanted to list a few ways here in 2024 that you could help us to, to kind of expand our network. Obviously you can always share our podcast. If you could think of five people in your network who would find value in hearing one of our conversations, just hit that share button. That helps us so much to get these conversations in more ears. But then on, on top of that, we, we do have a virtual training that's available on our website. It's our six module training and we we give our 100% stamp of approval that if you go through our training, you will become a better human being. And by being a better human being, you are inherently going to be a better listener because you just, you care deeply about people. And so we just encourage you to go to our website, someone to tell to learn a little bit more about our training and to access it. And then to, again, encourage other people to go through the training as well. So we're just excited about this year of sales to try to push our our work so that it just expands this movement of of listening on a global scale. So thanks for being a part of it.
1: So we'd like to share a little bit about our guest, Annie Rappaport, today. Annie Rappaport, PhD, describes herself as an academic, an artist, and an advocate. In her role as an academic, her primary field is international peace studies She is a bridge builder, a researcher, and a teacher. As an artist, she is formally trained as a theater artist, musician, and a graphic designer. She has incorporated her love of the arts into her research, her teaching, and her advocacy work. And as an advocate, she brings passion to everything she does. We think you'll hear that in in the conversation today having held elected and appointed roles that have played, that helped her serve her communities, especially within the University of Maryland system. She also serves on the Semester at Sea Alumni Council, which you'll hear a little bit about in this conversation, which advocates for the enriching power of international and experiential education. And she also serves on the board of the International Listening Association, to which we belong as well, which advocates for listening skills in fields such as education and healthcare. Annie lives in the Charlottesville, Virginia area with her husband
0: and her twin daughters. Well, Annie, welcome to the Someone to Tell to podcast. It's so good to have you with us today.
2: Thank you so much, Tom and Michael, for having me. It's It's an honor.
0: And Happy New Year.
2: Happy New Year! <laughs>
0: Well, one of the things that we have always done with our guests, and we we love to start our conversations this way, is just to ask you to tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself.
2: Yes, I am currently a person trying to make, I guess, make my dreams come true. I recently p- finished my PhD at the University of Maryland a little over a year ago. And like so many in academia, I find myself hopeful and also weary as, as I seek a full-time career. I'm doing so many meaningful things. I'm able to teach graduate students, both at Maryland and University of Virginia. I'm able to teach a course in genocide prevention at Maryland to graduate students, which is a course I created that means so much to me. I'm able to do postdoctoral research, and I'm able to do work for the Holistic Education Review, which is a journal, and I enjoy all of those projects. And yet I feel like I cannot settle and give my all to any one thing because it feels so scattered, but all those projects are worthwhile and mean so much to me. So overall, a lot of gratitude for where I am in life. I love the, funny enough, when you have that many roles, there's still you gain an element of flexibility. And so it means I'm able to spend quite a bit of time as well working at home and being near my two toddler daughters, which is, which is a true gift.
0: One of the things that we, as we were preparing for our conversation with you and some of the other interviews that, that we've had, we learned that you're, I think the youngest of 11 children. Is that accurate?
2: Yes. And the youngest are 12. 12. Wow. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And it's, Yours, mine and ours family and I'm the youngest two and I'm related. They're all half. All my siblings are half. Wow. Do you or, ever
1: all, all. do, 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 do <laughs> you do you ever all get together at one time? I, I mean, you is that is that possible with so many?
2: you know, it, we're so spread out. Yeah. No, it hasn't been possible in many years. But when I was very little, a few times, yes. When I was very little, we were all able to get together. And so because of so many siblings, I have 15 nieces and nephews and I have great nieces and nephews. I have nieces and nephews older than me, so baby aunt Annie, because I came so much (laughs) later. So we're spread out not only geographically, but through our age. So my my youngest brother, the closest to me is 17 years older than me. So I'm closer in age to my nieces and nephews than I am to to my uh, brothers and sisters.
0: As I was learning a little bit more about your childhood, one of the things that I found to be most interesting and fascinating, I think it'd be a really helpful context for our listeners in terms of the conversation around just listening and why you care so much about listening today is to tell a little bit about the story of your relationship with your dad as a lawyer and how he kind of set you up for success in, in a career in listening and communication.
2: That's a great question. Thank you so much. It's... My father, I was, I was the daughter of his older years, so he was 63 when I was born. And in our home, there were many narratives that I grew up with that I took to heart. And some of those surrounded our, our family and, and how it took so much hard work to get to where they were in their older years. And I came of came at the end of of that journey. So by that time, my father had his law offices. They so did mostly family law in our home. And he decided it would be very, he was also a polygot. So he spoke seven languages. And so I would hear all these different languages and I would hear him talking to folks because we're from Tucson, Arizona. I would hear a lot of Spanish <laughs> uh, because we're part of the Jewish community. I would hear a lot of Hebrew. And I'd hear a lot of English. And so it was fun to hear the languages, but also my father thought it was so important to have a good memory. And he thought it was very important to understand history. And he thought it was very important to listen and remember what you hear. And so he would have me come into his office when I was small and either sit with him and people wouldn't think anything of it. Cause it was just this little girl sitting in with them on a legal meeting. Or he'd have me like sit under his table if he was, or, you know, just play around if he was doing something. And then he'd kind of get quizzed afterwards. <laughs> and he would say, what, what did you hear? What did, you, what did they say? What did the other folks say? What did you hear? And that was, those were kind of memory exercises that he would do with me. And so one of my favorite stories, I don't know if it's 100% accurate. I'm sure I babbled first, but... My mom always tells people my first words were affidavit, and that's because I was growing up listening to <laughs> legal, legal leads. Uh, but it means that you learn that there's different languages, not only different languages across cultural contexts, and so far as like Hebrew and Spanish, and my father spoke Japanese, and and so ma- just so many languages in our house. Uh, but also, legalese is another language. And so watching my father try to convey things to folks who aren't don't have a JD, and trying to help them learn how to advocate for their self or for their family in terms and concepts that are a whole new lexicon It really, really helped me understand that a lot of times the misunderstandings come from those differences of understanding word meanings or how things are taken by different people in different settings based on their background and based on how they see the world and how they've been treated in the world or how, or how they interact with the world.
1: Fascinating childhood, fascinating experiences. Just ask. um, Let me ask you this question: How many languages do you speak? Did you did you learn a number of languages? Be you know because of your father and his example.
2: You know that's such a great question. I did not. (laughs) I know some. I know some. I know some. I can get by in Spanish. I can get by in German. We're currently we're hosting a Ukrainian student. Our family is, and I'm slowly learning some Ukrainian. So I can I can get by. I can give by in some language I couldn't write an academic paper in any he could have written <laughs> you academic papers. <laughs> yeah. so I, I cannot reach reach that level. But I find such beauty in language. And when I when I was doing my work with Dr. Andrew Wolden, who's a listening scholar and I, I'm more so a peace scholar, but we we are so happy to always work together. We work together on multiple projects. But one of the projects we worked on was how do we bridge things that were important to both of us? And one of them is Israel and Palestine, which is so prominent in the news these days, yet again, and for such tragic and sad and heartbreaking reasons. And But there was an organization, there still is an organization, called News Story Leadership that we would work with. And I remember they would would pair a Palestinian youth and an Israeli youth in a homestay in Washington, D.C. area they would learn from each other, and they would create a project together. And a couple of the of the alumni that I spoke with to understand like what worked, how did your change project go? Something mentioned time and time again was one of the things that causes so much strife and so much misunderstanding, so much ill will and fear in that area, is the inability to listen to one another because of the language barrier, even though you're ne- neighbors. And one of the change projects that meant, so seemed like such an amazing project to me was creating a way to teach her free Arabic to Israeli people. And so that was one. Another one was coming together. If you can't understand each other's language, a change project was bringing people together over yoga. And and something that doesn't you can connect nonverbally before you then try to bridge gaps with translators and such, but that work that they, really they were doing we were just helping document and trying to amplify in some way the incredible work all of them were doing. But it felt so it feels so sad that none of that ever seems to get notice. And so when these big tragic happenings occur and there's such loss of life and things the the things you always hear about are intractable conflict there always seems to be a desire to and not that this is wrong a desire for accountability a desire to understand what's happening why is it happening how do we get here all those things are important but sometimes or all the time really these days i'm so sad because it feels like all those other things it's almost as if they didn't happen and they were important too
0: One of the most meaningful projects that we were involved in in 2023 here at Someone to Tell to is we, I think you had heard about this, is we were uh, given the opportunity to listen to Afghanistan refugees here in central Pennsylvania, where we're headquartered. And we did that all through interpreters. So there would be three gentlemen who would be able to interpret the stories of these Afghanistan refugee, in this case, men. Um, And it was just a profound experience. And... I think we were able through the interpreters to bridge that gap that you're describing. And um, you know we think that it is possible because people's stories, no matter how many differences we may have, and there were some times that we fumbled our way through some of the things that we asked or some vulnerability on our end that maybe just didn't connect and we had to learn. Nevertheless, we were able to find some incredible common ground. By the time that...
1: Project was finished this past December. Uh, we we just felt just really connected with the, with these men. We felt uh, bonds that were very close, and and we could laugh together, and and also talk about some very serious and painful uh, things together for them in particular. And and I think then we were able to open up again, be more vulnerable ourselves, and and talk about our own lives, our own families, and. As they talked about theirs, and and that really helped too. I think for for us to walk on common ground together, you know, talking yeah. about the people we love, and 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 common feelings we we have for the people we love, and and that it, it was just is so incredible, and mm-hmm. and meaningful, and to be able to, to 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 do that, to be able to bridge language bridge culture bridge religions bridge you know <laughs> just even politics it it can be done it, it can be done and it is being done but but those stories do not often get told and they get overlooked and we as you know we 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 hear the worsts the worst stories and experiences and Often not the best.
2: Yeah, not the best. And they and don't know what impact it's gonna have. What I'm what I'm seeing is somebody thousands of miles away from that particular conflict right now, but it feels very feels immediate and very close, but geographically it's miles and miles away. What I'm sensing when I talk to friends who are still living in the area is this in tremendous weight of sadness and sorrow and what feels like it's being removed through the way things are being handled, but also how the stories are being told right now. It's one of the least hopeful types. It feels like hope is being drained because it feels like there's less, less ability to suspend judgment and listen to understand how people are feeling right now, why actions are being done in the way that they're being done, who actually agrees with those actions and who doesn't agree with those actions. And, and instead of that, at least in the United States and what I feel in my own community is it feels so like a very dramatic push towards clear cut simplified, this is evil, this is good. They've always been in the wrong. They've always been in the right. And that's just a very interesting shift in the conversations of that, about that particular place in the world. And I, and it seems very detrimental to so many things And one thing that I've really taken to heart on both campuses that I work at is I can't, I can only say for one of the two campuses that there has been an uptick both in Islamophobic and anti-Semitic reports, like hate bias report, and uh, we're thousands of miles away, but look at that impact that's happening and how sad that is that we're seeing both of those happen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, it's an interesting time, and I, I don't know how to make the attention shift because there's a value placed on that, right? And if I were to say, well, why don't we focus on that? I I view that as, I then anticipate the reaction of many to be, well, that's because you don't want people to see all the terrible things going on, right? Like that's why you want to shift the attention. Like, But that's not why. I can anticipate and see why that might be a, re- a reaction to any, any conflict uh, and like shifting away from watching the violence.
0: I think you, like us, we can't ignore the realities all around us. We have to be aware of the realities to know how to address the realities, but we also can't live there. And I think that that's what you're describing is we have to be a people of hope. And I know as we were, again, preparing for our conversation, we noticed something that you wrote that you said that you had a supervisor unhesitatingly call you a catalyst. And we loved that. And uh, it says that you make things happen and have a reputation for creating strong programs, building partnerships and increasing engagement in collaborative and sustainable ways. So we just would love to know where did that drive come from your abilities and your gift of, of being a catalyst because we probably would describe ourselves in a similar similar vein
2: I would too I would describe people that way as well, yeah. well thank you. <laughs> uh, you. yes yeah, I would <laughs> I always I was just so I blushed so much when that happened <laughs> when that particular supervisor said that about me I'd never heard that and I thought that was so kind and that particular supervisor was a supervisor of mine at an art community center in College Park Maryland and the center was struggling when myself and my, and, and somebody I I love that I got to work with named Jessica, we came in and we were both graduate students and we were filling the role of professional people as graduate students. So what used to be full-time people was now graduate students who are part-time, but we ended up working full-time because we cared so much about the center. And the center would bring together people. It, it helped bridge the whole town and gown thing that you hear about, like get connecting people at universities that are from all over with the actual community members who live full time for many years in that area, who are not as transient as the students. And also with faculty and staff, too. And, and we were able to do so many things. So I think he was thinking about all of the different art classes we started and how we had, I had the couple of students and one of them with well, his name's Diego and he <laughs> and he was a soccer player at Maryland and he was so committed to there being film photography again at the university and my supervisor Joe he said well you know we have a dark room it's just nobody used it in like 10 years and it was this dark dark place it was scary it was kind of you kind of felt like a haunted house it was cobwebs and truly nobody had been in there the last pic- people who had been in there had left their pictures that were still you know manifest <laughs> the, right they were still having the thing clipped up in the dark and they, and you had the door that was a circular door kind of like you see in front of hotels sometimes but it meant that the light would never get in Right. So it was rotating. So anybody entering the light would never get so a very, very dark. <laughs> but we, we figured it out and not only did we figure out how to revitalize that dark room one, one thing at a time, we were able to do it in a way that was environmentally conscious and with environmental stewardship. So we were able to get a grant from the sustainability center to help bring back film photography of all things, which seems like a contradiction, but it wasn't a contradiction if you just give the time to learn. And a lot of that learning comes from listening to the students who are seeking to have film photography again, which I think is so cool that students in 2000, you know, this is still the 2010 that that they wanted film photography. They didn't want to just snap lots and lots of photos with their phone. They wanted to go through this process of watching how the pictures take shape. And so we're able to bring that back. We had a very active ceramic studio. And when we ran out of clay at one point, we had to go and I had to help carry a thousand pounds of clay. So it's like, if you have to get something done, you get it done because you're trying to make these opportunities happen for people to be creative, to connect, to have a community space that they can decompress in, get restored in, express themselves in. And so I think that's why that was the word that came into his head. But I, I would say at this point, I just continue to aspire to be that, and I try to practice being that more than anything.
1: As as we talk about your catalyzing hmm. efforts, what which ones are you most proud of, and and why of of ways that you have because of your because of those efforts, you've changed things, you've made things better, you've you know given hope, you've revitalized something. Is is there any you know any those things that you that stand out to you as is, is some of your favorites and for which you have a lot of pride?
2: That's a really good question. Thank you for that question. I'm trying to get better at this. I don't know why this is. I, I'm learning I'm not alone in this. It's hard for me to feel proud about things because I feel like, Pride is like a not-so-good emotion. So I'm trying to get better at this, especially because I'm looking for that full-time job. Because I have to be able to say what I'm proud of. But I always view everything I've ever been able to accomplish has been because it's been a team. And it's because we're able to do things as a team. And so it's very hard for me to ever phrase things as like, I did this. It always feels like we did this. But people looking in who describe me say like, you did that, Annie. And I was like, but I couldn't have done it without this whole long list of all these people. And he said, that's true, but also would not have happened without you. Like you were the spirit, like you were, you're the reason it happened. You brought the people together and you have, so I'm trying to get better at this. So I'm glad you asked this question. I'm just going to think about <laughs> it
0: for a moment. <laughs> well, I'll interject for a second while you're while you're thinking there, if you could do two things at once. Yes. But I'll just make a comment. I think, catal- I think this is the right word, catalyzers, cat- catalysts, I think by nature you're disrupting something that's not being done and so i think what we're doing and we put ourselves in this category again you're seeing something that's not currently being done and you're willing to lean in to kind of disrupt it for the better but then we know and we have a dynamic team at someone to tell to we have you know a board of directors that works really hard you know we know that we don't accomplish anything on our own and and so maybe we're the ones that start that process but then it's inviting other people into that process with us because in order to have and we call it a movement you need lots and lots and lots of people to be involved and if it's just a small pool of people it's not going to have the kind of legs that you're you're envisioning so so so
2: true that's a really good point yeah yeah
1: <laughs> Now you just have to convince yeah, it yourself that that's... Yes.
2: <laughs> and I like that idea of disruption. And it's something I'm seeing learn, and I, that's one I feel like I can really embrace, is this idea of, dis- like, positive disruption. And I'd say some of the things that have brought me the most meaning, that make me smile at the end of the day, one would be I worked for a place called Semester at Sea, the Institute for Shipboard Learning. Talk about a dream job, like what an amazing job to get. I worked there for six years and I was able to bring the most international students that program had ever had to the ship. And I still keep in touch with most of them. And that was a slow build over the six years. Right. But, but we were able, it used to be viewed as a pipe dream. Kind of to have more and more international students because Annie, don't you see all these barriers? Visas, finances. These folks, you know, the people you want to bring on the ship, their currency is not as strong as the U.S. dollar. You know how? How on earth? How are they even going to be able to cover small things when they go to these very, you know, countries with a much stronger currency? Or, how will you help them if their English isn't perfect yet? And how will you, how can we welcome people if their credits won't transfer back to the university of, where you name it, place in the world? And, and so, so many barriers, right? But for me, at the end of the day, I was like, we can't be an international program. And we can't say the world is our campus if we're not inviting and really mean that we're inviting the world in. So it took a lot of long nights. It took a lot of, I've been told I worked kind of like a young lawyer would work. Like you just work all these hours because you're just trying to figure it out. So I was trying to figure out visas. I was trying to figure out currency, scholarships, all these different things. And so being able to advocate for those things and some of the hardest spaces to do that in is trying to convince leadership that also has a lot of other concerns on their mind, they're trying to keep a whole program running on a ship. A ship is incredibly expensive (laughs) and it only got more expensive with how fuel costs were going while I was working there. And almost every voyage, you can still look at the voyages to this day. One thing I love about semester at sea is they're flexible. And so if something happened, for example, recently in, in the fall, there was the earthquake in Morocco to not be a burden on, on that port in Morocco. They diverged and went to Barcelona, Spain. So they, they're able to always adapt, which I always love. By inviting people from around the world onto the campus and truly supporting them, whether they're faculty, staff, or students, you have to add in to your considerations of where you're gonna go, the timing of which ports you're going to, who will and will not be allowed on, off that ship. An example of this would be one of our most common ports is India, wonderful port. India has very strict, I shouldn't say has, uh, had at the time, I I can't claim that this is what they do now, but in the years that I was working there, very strict rules to where even our students who had one Pakistani parent or one Pakistani grandparent, they're not going to get off that ship. So then you as a program have to think about, do we go to this port? If not, everyone can get off. One time when I was on the ship, they were just beginning to lift the barrier to go to Cuba. So everybody thought they were going to Cuba. And I was actually on the ship at this point. And we're getting closer, getting closer. And we learned from the the legal standards that the students would be allowed to get off in Cuba. But not the lifelong learners. And we chose not to go to Cuba because not everybody could get off in of Cuba. And that, that created some some conflict um, on the ship about, about what, what people should or should not have done. But... I think my personal feeling is we made the right choice because first and foremost, we're a community. And sometimes we couldn't help it. And we would talk to the student beforehand. We've had a, we had a few students come who were refugees. And as a refugee, that's even harder to get all the various visas. And so sometimes in very select circumstances, we would sit with the student and say, we're unable to change this much of the itinerary. Are you willing to come even if you can't get off in this port? And we would be very clear and we may or may not could have, but I felt so good about how many nationalities we were finally able to bring on that ship because that's where I think the real education comes. I think it comes from the people that you're living with and learning from, and then that helps, of course, that you're going to all these places, but the fact that everybody was there from such different perspectives, I, I, I will always feel good about that. So I felt really good about that. The other one I think would be one I did not expect at all. <laughs> Which was that University of Maryland, they have, like many universities, they have different mechanisms of shared governance. Hard to explain, but basically, you have to, you have people representing constituencies, faculty, undergraduate students, staff, and graduate students. And there was a lot of conflict going on with the graduate students. And there was an impeachment of the graduate student president, and I had some people come to me and say, Annie, you need a job. Would you consider this? Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, dear, no. Oh, dear, no, no. <laughs> I don't want to get into politics, even though, like, I, what is politics of graduate student government, right? Like, I don't want to get into politics. And they said, no, I think you're so you're so calm. <laughs> we think you might actually be able to bring this people back together because we should have over 100 people on this graduate student leadership thing. And we have, you know, 15 like can you help us get this the numbers back and and so people thought i kid you not people gave me the weirdest looks because i was voted in i did get it nobody else wanted the position though so it wasn't like it was really competitive (laughs) and i was elected and like woo no no we're like well anybody please just it's really bad right now (laughs) and so i think that first time i ran completely uncontested and so i was elected in and people give me all these crazy looks because they're like, well, what are you going to do with your time? How are you going to do this, do this, do this, do this? And I said, before I do any of that, I'm going to sit down with every single person and I'm going to listen to them for like an hour. I'm going to ask them what they want. Why did they join? What are they doing? I'm going to talk to the people who've left. I'm going to see why they left. I want to go listen to the people of the different departments that have shut. They literally shut the door. They were like, we don't want to work graduate students anymore. You, you, No, no, no. <laughs> And so that took a lot of time. And people were like, you don't have that time to spend doing that. And I said, I cannot afford not to do that because how else are we going to get anywhere? The reason all these people are so upset is because they don't feel heard. They don't feel listened to and they're correct. They haven't been listened to and they don't feel heard. And so it, when I was listening to folks, we were able to unearth a number of different things, like people feeling bullied, people feeling. Unfortunately, discriminated against by, let's say, their advisors or by other peers or what have you. So we were able to get really far. We were able to do a lot of things. We were able to shift from the chaos of the organization falling apart to we're now cohesive again. Now let's get better stipend. Now let's advocate and get more housing options, like things that can truly help people in the day to day. Living of their lives as graduate student, so that's probably the other one now I always like sit back and be like, mm, that worked out <laughs>
1: that's wonderful <laughs> and and the you you struggled at first to even come up with anything, but then you 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 did a great job at uh, you know two two fantastic examples of that, and we can only imagine there are many many more mm-hmm. too we have no doubt about that so you mentioned listening there a couple of times, especially there at, at the end when and or how did you discover that listening was so important? you know well, this this is important to us this is you know you have, uh, because this is what we do as well, and we believe it's extremely important what what inspired you to to understand that or come to that conclusion as well? really good question.
2: And one day, I'm sure you have this somewhere, I'll want to hear your old stories with that, Uh, so that I kind of know them, I kind of know them, but I feel like they probably come even earlier than the story I know about. So that would be interesting to know. But I would say a couple of things. I used to, all throughout my life, until I was in university. That was a pretty good student. I wasn't great. That yeah. was pretty good. And the thing I wasn't very good at, the the grade, like the reason my grades were never way up here, because I refused to participate because I was scared to death <laughs> to participate in class. I mean, scared to death, like heart race. <laughs> I, not. I was like, please, no. Anything but that, I'd rather get a lower grade than, than ask a question. I think we both, research. both of us can
1: relate to that. We have <laughs> stories we could tell about that too. <laughs>
2: yes. yeah. I petrified. I don't even know exactly why the petrified. <laughs> but once I reached, um, I did my undergraduate in Texas. I was doing my undergraduate. And I realized that I'm able to find my voice when I feel like I'm a conduit for others or I'm advocating for others. And so I transferred to a university in Texas, in San Antonio. And then I realized that I felt like there needed to be a lot done to help transfer students. And so I ended up helping do transfer mentoring. And then that meant that I got to go do these things that I, I wouldn't have signed up for myself, but they were like, okay, you're doing this. And I have to go to this leadership summer summit in the summer and go learn leadership things. And, and I went. And it was an incredible workshop, it, and it was, they did a lot on identity and inclusion and belonging and life experiences and lots of physical activities to help people express themselves not verbally, which was super helpful. And then we got to this piece where they wanted people to, to speak up and let people know about identities that were less well-known in that context, because it changes context wherever you work, right? And I, again, was petrified in but nobody said that they would speak up for jewish people and first of all only three people in this whole big thing of like 150 people even identified as jewish (laughs) and so i was like okay i i can't let this go silent because if i let this go silent all these people will walk away not knowing anything else about how that very few of us may feel on this campus and so i did i actually spoke up and I felt so listened to that it changed my whole life. Like the people listened to me, they thanked me afterwards. They say, you know what? I'm in a relationship with a Jewish person and I haven't known how to do these things. And hearing you talk about your personal experiences. Now I feel like I can be a better partner to my, my, this person in my life for I have always wondered that, but I've been too afraid to ask because I didn't want to be judged for asking the question as insensitive or just not knowing what I should already know or, and that was so transformative for me. And I had to sit back and realize that I loved listening to stories. I love listening to biographies. I love listening to autobiographies. And so but I needed to have my, it really raised my own feeling of I have purpose, I have worth, and I can contribute. And so that helped me realize the listening piece so much. And it helped me kind of launch, launch that quite a bit. And then the other piece would be in my mid twenties, I got very, very sick. I, I had an unknown illness and I had it for about two and a half years before they figured out what it was. It, it was slowly killing me but people didn't know what it was. And I was just very, very, very sick. I ended up leaving my job. fully leaving my job i couldn't be as present at my job and it was it was a really terrible scary time but during that two and a half years and this there's an amount of i realized how how lucky i am in this in that two and a half years i saw over 30 doctors specialists i was told it was in my head at different points i had other people care but they said we don't know what else to do we can't figure out what's wrong with you and it really clued me into again listening because it was I learned that I needed to self-advocate and I needed to help connect the dots and I needed to be able to have other people listen to me as the patient. And that actually led me to giving a talk at the International Listening Association when they had a convention based on healthcare. And I presented listening to patients with like unknown diseases and showing care in that way and being able to be in that space with so many people. And again, I realized the power of listening because when people listened to my story, they came up to me and they said, my daughter's going through this, like my daughter has an unknown illness. We don't, thank you so much for speaking up. She's faced so many of those same things or we've been so frustrated and feel so lost. so I feel it's interesting because the, the times that I realized how important listening were was when I felt like somebody, I was able to contribute because they heard me. But when I think about it something around me. But the really truth was when I realized that if people listen to some of the things I have to say, that can be powerful too.
0: Yeah, a couple of comments about all of that. First off, we're just grateful. It sounds like you're doing much better and you're healthy now. Mm-hmm. You look healthy and, and that's a gift. You know, one of the things mm-hmm. that it's it's very obvious is that the world needs Annie healthy. So the kind of impact that you're able to have is massive. And um, so we're grateful for that. And we're sorry that you had to go through all of that. It was probably a very scary time in your life, but it also sounds like that was a really formative time for you. And you learned so much about yourself and it sounds like you've been on a journey to grow in confidence with who you are and also to be proud of yourself and to what you have to offer the world and And that's a gift, because I think once you know Brene Brown talks a lot about this and her work on vulnerability, but just being able to own our stories and how our stories are are everything and how they can help us just have confidence in in, in who we are and, and just owning owning who we are. so we're proud of you for. For coming to that revelation, to be confident in who you are now, and so I, I guess maybe a question I'd have as I'm as I'm thinking about this, and it kind of comes back to this 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 question we had asked earlier about being a catalyst. I think oftentimes catalysts, we, when we think of catalysts, we probably think of people who are maybe more boisterous or you know loud, but it sounds like. You, even in the classroom setting, were a bit more soft-spoken, and we will put ourselves in that category. But I think, what would you want to say to people who maybe are, fall into that category, yet we we would probably make the argument that we're all catalysts in our own way, and we need to be. So what would you say to those people who maybe are a bit more behind the scenes, maybe don't get acknowledged as much?
2: Yeah i thoughtful, thoughtful question. I work with students now. Now I don't have this, by the way. Now, also now I teach classes. Thank goodness I'm not too afraid to speak to teach the class, <laughs> but, but I have students in my heart, like just grows whenever I see students who I read what they're writing right so I know that they're thinking these thoughts that would be so beneficial if other students got to hear them but my student or students plural had that same feeling of like my heart's about to go (laughs) so I I think I just I don't know what everyone's transformative Lola will be I hope people know that their story is worthwhile and, and I would almost put, I almost put the onus more sometimes on the defaults of how things are done. So a lot of my, at least what I'm told my successes when I get my evaluations as a teacher is people really like how I set up the class because you can't fade into the background in my classes. but I don't do it in such a way that everybody feels on the spot and their heart's going to beat out of their chest it's just we do it kind of like how you all are doing this podcast it's a conversation and shifting things to a true conversation and laying out the ground rules and making it so everyone has a turn because when i was listening i would ask students why do you not want to speak up and someone would say well i don't want to feel like people think i'm taking over the class or i'd have people say i'm afraid people will see right through me and know that i don't know this one piece because i don't know everything about this one topic or These sorts of things and so we we lay a a groundwork of none of it we're all human none of us know everything if somebody says something and you immediately bristle you bristle up and you're like oh i really don't like what i just heard (laughs) instead of instead of closing off or shooting down or instead try to i i ask them to think of questions. I say, instead of those things, instead of retreating and saying you're too scared to say anything, you're going to hold your tongue or whatever, ask a question, try to figure out why that person may believe what just came out of their mouth, right? And if you ask three questions, three is like, I don't know, it doesn't have to be three, but you can ask three questions, it gives you a chance to (laughs) re. it puts you out of reaction back into absorption into trying to learn and at least give you a more holistic picture of of who you just heard that that thought from but i i would ask the more i learn about how classes are done i try to give lots of ways for people to express themselves okay maybe you feel really it's really hard to talk if it's live and we're all together in person but maybe you're okay recording yourself and uploading it to our to our learning management system. So some people really like that and it gives them a chance. But by the time we reach like class three, usually everyone's pretty comfortable. And I wish that could become more of the, more the default than this. I feel like there's a mis a myth, a mistake, a myth or a mistake that academic rigor is heightened by the amount of stress you feel. <laughs> like this must be a really good demanding class. I'm terrified. Mm. <laughs> if I feel terrified, this must be a really hard demanding, I must be learning so much because I am so intimidated. I actually think that, that that doesn't have to be the case. And in fact, I think that could actually detract from emails that could be learned, not only across students, but I learn so much every time I get to teach a class, quote unquote teacher. I, always, I say I'm co-learning with them. And, and being willing to be vulnerable, uh, because if you can model that, then I think the people who feel like you you all did and I did in class can be like, "Oh, my teacher is being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It's okay, right? Like so, so I think there's some modeling.
1: Yeah, I um, uh, I'm thinking about you, you you said you'd love to hear some of our maybe <laughs> experiences here too, and I'll, I'll share I'll share one of mine that and I've written about it. Uh, but when I was a um, senior in high school, I was in a, a class uh, called Problems of Democracy, and the teacher said that our entire grade would be based on class participation. There were no tests. There were no papers. There was, it was only about how much you talked. Well, as an introvert, a natural introvert, it was in very intimidating for me. And what, instead of having what I thought was intelligent, important, vital kinds of conversations about whatever topic we were to talk about that, that class period, it seemed like everyone, that that there were, there were many in the class who were only trying to get the, the A. And so they would just talk all the time and number one, not give many other people a chance to talk too, and and so many of them who did talk, it it was often repeating what somebody else said just in some different words. And I mean, when my thought was, well, I'm not going to just speak up and say the same, I mean, I want to say something that's, that I Mm -hmm. think is helpful, that hasn't been heard, that, that, that can add to the conversation. And so I rarely spoke because it was, it was such a competition. And it just, to me, it was, wasn't comfortable. I ended up, getting a D in the class because of that.
0: D's for diplomas. Yeah, yeah.
1: well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, the only reason I didn't get an F that I didn't fail the class was because I was there every, you know, I I always showed up at least, you know, I, I, I was there. But that was demoralizing to me, especially so because, you know, in a few months I was going to college to study that very subject, I mean, my my degree, my undergraduate degree, is in government, public service, political science, democr- You know, problems of democracy, <laughs> and and so here I was going to college to to study these things, and I was I was made to feel in that class as if I had no business doing that. Does that make? Did, I don't know, I don't know how that sense. how that lands with you.
2: And but, what a um, lot, right? Yeah. What a lot yeah. for every student who walks away from a class like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm going to ask a, a follow-up question mm-hmm. to what the, the story Michael just shared. I think this would be kind of maybe a good way to end our conversation today. How can we help give more people a voice? <laughs> it's
2: a great question. I think something that very true for me that I believe very much is we are all more powerful than we think we are in so far as to what you're, what you're saying. Like, how do we give more people a voice? All of us in our lives have the power to give more people a voice Mm -hmm. and I would say one thing is to put on fresh eyes or challenge yourself in your own workplaces, in your your school settings, in your community spaces, in your families. Look around and who are you not giving voice to? Or not giving enough voice to? One that has become very apparent, very apparent to me, and I feel is such a, Mm-hmm. It just takes being a kind person and maybe just thinking about it. And I'm sure people aren't trying to not be kind when this is happening. So I don't want to make it sound like there's a judgment, like you're not kind because you weren't already doing it. Not at all. But I've realized both working at Maryland and Virginia that there's a handful of them. And this just comes naturally where you, everybody you work with is everybody you work with. It's not a hierarchy, but then you learn that there is a hierarchy. And you realize that many of your peers or colleagues, people that are also very kind people, for example, don't strike up conversations with, with the staff. They have built a a wall between themselves and staff, or they don't want to talk to or listen to students unless they're in the class answering the very question they have given. And I've also learned that many faculty don't feel heard or listened to. And it's because of these barriers of role on campus. That's interesting to me. And we were recently trying to figure out there's going to be a contemplative sciences center next door to the school of education at Virginia. And they want to have these cross community dinners. And again, the, the population that was left out, that's so often left out. And I think to everyone's loss. Is I I don't know if it's the same term in every university, but non-exempt staff. Facility management, what have you. And it it was an abrupt realization for me to learn that not everybody was making a relationship with everybody else. To learn that there were some that work for 10, 20 years somewhere and don't know who the person is that's helping keep their space clean. That is bizarre to me, but no judgment. Like, just stop it. Like... (laughs) (laughs) Like <laughs> to Go learn and listen. And so that's one of the first people I want to get to know because we're going to be seeing each other every single day and they're incredible people. And I remember at Maryland, I'm still I'm still really good friends with that person, that person who, and and there's just so much, there's so much there to unpack. Why is that? Why, why isn't that just the default? I don't know the answers to these questions, but I feel like, and that's different in every industry. I'm sure that there's parallels uh, around the world or in around different different places people work. Another place is be willing to have conversations. Students I've been listening to for the last year about mental health, how to improve mental health on campus. The number one thing is belonging, feeling like you belong. Mm-hmm. And students just want spaces on campus where they don't feel like they're interrupting somebody to, to meet somebody. They're like, can we just have a dining table where everybody knows and if you sit there, you want to meet someone because I feel like if I'm new, I'm interrupting someone. Same thing for spaces that are studying or spaces they that people are feel are having these, these moments of feeling rude where there would have in past times before there were all these headphones and things, it would have been just natural to go introduce yourself and say, hey, I, I study here too. Who are you? So I don't know. Things like that. Little things. I think we all have the power to do that. And I think it could have a really big impact.
0: Wayne, this has been delightful. Yeah, and you, like so many of our guests, we could we our our poor listeners have to hear this all the time. But we could talk with you, talk to you for hours, and we we look forward to being able to talk to you for hours. But we probably should end our time together just for the sake of our listeners today. But this has been delightful, and and we just want to affirm who you are. You are truly a gift to the world, and you are a catalyst. And I think that supervisor was very prophetic and in. in and saying those words over you. And we're, we're fortunate to have spent uh, just a quality time together today. So yeah, thank and, you.
1: And we know that there's so many other things you do, so many other areas in which you, you serve and you, you help people and you make life better. You help to make life better for them. And yeah, we could have many, mo- many, many more conversations. Here Here is thank you for this one. Thank you for everything you've shared and for thank you for being who you are and what you offer to the world, because what you are and what you offer is what the world needs. And we're grateful to know you. So thank you mm-hmm. so much.
2: Same to you. The feeling is very mutual. Thank you, though.
1: We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. I not you know. Tom mentioned it earlier. We say about all of our conversations with our guests. We just love them. And we could talk so much more with every single person. And Annie is definitely one of those people. We have had the privilege of, of knowing her previous to this, this conversation, and she's just been a delight every time we've spoken to her. She is, has so many different gifts and skills, and uh, only just a small portion of them came through in this conversation because there are just so many, and we couldn't talk about them all. But we, we hope that you've learned from this, you've been inspired from this, and that it's been a meaningful conversation. And as Tom mentioned earlier in the intro to this to this podcast that we, we really covet your you know your support your support in, in we, there's an option to to help support the podcast financially. You can go to patreon.com and and sign up and, and support the work that we do. You can go on our own website and and just make make a gift and, and note it that it's for the podcasts if you know if you really appreciate these these podcasts and these conversations and the guests that we bring and the things we talk about you can support that financially and that would help us so much you can also buy our books we've written four of them together you can go on our website and find out about them we are proud of each of them they've been written for different audiences and there 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 we hope that there will be one of them at least that would appeal to you and it's something that would speak to you in the work that you do, in the life that you lead. And so those are other ways in which you can, you can support our work and help us to expand it so that, that, we, that we truly are helping the world to listen because we are growing the audience, growing the network, and growing the people
0: whom we are able to help. We'll just end by just thanking you for joining us here in 2024. We're in season six, which is just hard to believe. We've had almost a hundred episodes of the Someone to Tell To podcast, and you've been with us all along the way, and we're grateful. So we look forward to the next conversation, and until we listen again.